0: It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So this is episode, uh, I, don't know, I probably should look before I say that. Oh, 17. I was going to say 16, so I'm really glad I didn't. Uh, I'm in that zone when you're in the mid-teens where they could easily jumble on you, so I'm glad I checked. It's episode 17. And the title is a little exotic, I have to admit, uh, Fighting Like a Wildcat. And it's a story, sort of like the the one, The Iron Chin, if you guys were here for The Iron Chin, which was about James J. Braddock. This is uh, a storyline that is basically gonna be from World War I all the way to where we're at in in 1942. So we've been stuck in 1942 for three straight messages. We're in the middle of the war, but we're not really addressing the war specifically. And uh, this is a famous character, famous American. His motto in life was, uh, I'll fight like a wildcat. That was his famous motto in life. So I don't know if that gives enough away that you could figure it out. Probably most people in our current generation wouldn't know uh, how to link that motto with this man. But very fascinating man. Uh, and I'm going to link his life with our prayer lives. And so the reason I'm using him is he's a fascinating study. He was a Christian man, very... Uh, Odd guy, if I was going to say, okay, if you're going to pattern your life after someone, I'm not exactly sure that I would say this guy is who you should pattern your life after. At the same time, there are certain qualities of this man that are so profound that you just sort of stare and just, you have to smile. It's like, that is amazing. It's sort of a Winston Churchill-esque, if you could say it that way, where he's going to live so different than the world around him, and he's going to set a pace for others and he was a rather hard man, but he had a gentle heart. He was, he was sort of known for both and. What I want to focus on, though, is a certain attitude that he carried, and I, I, I feel it's essential in our own faith to carry this same attitude. And sometimes you can see that in strange places, and this is one of them. So, ooh, uh, so how does one pray? Now, I wouldn't think to answer that question by saying they ought to fight like a wildcat. And yet, in this message, that will work. Now, what's interesting is in this message, I'm not going to study wildcats or how they fight. I really don't know how wildcats fight. I'm just presuming that it's a pretty feisty sort of fighting, right? And so whatever that is, that could be our answer, even though I've never used that answer uh, in my life up to this point. It's, I think it, it says it well. So remember Elijah? Now to say that Elijah in the Old Testament fought like a wildcat would seem really awkward because it isn't our terminology. You know, that's not good biblical sounding terminology. I don't know if the word wildcat finds its way into scripture. And yet remember him on Mount Carmel when he is going to know that rain is coming and they've been in a drought for three and a half years and so he's going to pray and god is going to seal up the heavens and it's not going to rain for three and a half years and then he's going to pray and god is going to bring rain but that prayer to bring the rain is interesting because if you know god is going to do something shouldn't we just say yeah god uh, could you bring back the rain it's like you know flipping a switch instead Elijah seems to know something, and that is that he can have a promise of heaven, but then he needs to exercise prayer in this natural realm, and he needs to persist in that nat- in this natural realm in prayer until the heavenly realms change to match the natural, which is a picture of prayer in and of itself. That there is a we can see and know that God wants to do something in this earth. But it's not just the one-time prayer that we toss up into the heavenly realms like, God, could you do this? And then if he doesn't, we're like, well, obviously he doesn't want to do it. But we need to fight like a wildcat. We need to exert ourselves to see that which is in heaven come to this earth. And that takes repetition. It takes perseverance. It takes an attitude, an approach, which is called faith, indomitable, indestructible faith, to keep pressing until something happens. And that's what this man's life definitely demonstrates. So Elijah, he would not stop praying until the cloud appeared. So he knows that rain is going to come. So he bends and puts his face between his uh, his knees, and he cries out to heaven to bring rain. Then he sends his servant to go check to see if the rain has come. And the guy comes back and says, there's no rain. There's not even a cloud in the sky. So what does Elijah do? Give up? No that's what we might do. He instead sticks his head between his knees and prays again and then sends his servant. And the servant comes back there's nothing. Seven times and on the seventh time we're going to see that there is a cloud the size of a man's fist and that's all he needs. He just needs to know all right it's done takes just as much faith in that situation to stop praying as it did to start and to keep going because he knows that God has answered and once you know that God has answered all right move to the next thing he's going to sprint and run away from this rain because it's coming down so hard It has isn't in three and a half years and it is going to be a gusher so here's our character guys I don't know if you've ever heard of Eddie Rickenbacker uh we at least have one fan the rest of you are like what in the world Uh. (laughs) so Eddie Rickenbacker is just one of those guys that if you know about him you, you do sort of smile even his name you think about it Eddie Rickenbacker I mean how if you have a name like that you have to have a personality to match it so I'm going to give him a description he's the indestructible man and the way, the reason I'm likening this to your prayer life is the way that he is going to live his life is the way I want your prayer life to function. You need a little more Rickenbacker in your prayer life. So here's a, an old picture. This is his Medal of Honor picture. He's going to win the Medal of Honor in World War I. And uh, he was considered a dashing, handsome man. And so, uh, I mean, that's up to you. You can decide on if you guys think that. <clears throat> but Eddie, uh, from the very youngest age, is going to spurn death. This guy, when, he's called the Great Indestructible. That's his nickname. He would not die. No matter what, almost everyone else that did the same things or went through the same hazards as him died. And this guy is going to go through trauma, trial, tragedy, after one after the next, and he's still standing. Everyone else could die around him. It's like uh, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. So he was struck by a fast-moving horse-drawn fire cart when he was a little boy. Survives. He fell into a well and landed on his head at the bottom, yet survived. He got his, his foot got stuck in between two railroad ties while a train was coming. His brother got his foot unstuck just as the train was going to hit him. I mean, this guy already is a movie, right? I mean, we already have the movie uh, going. This guy just is somehow surviving and that's just his childhood drama. So what would a guy who has survived and survived and survived already in his life, what career would he go into? Well, of course, race car driving. I mean, why, why wouldn't he? So the Boston Globe, and this is at a later point in 1942, is actually going to call Eddie Rickenbacker the great indestructible. So Eddie's motto, as I've already said, was, I'll fight like a wildcat." So here's the quote from his son uh, after uh, Eddie had passed away. This is what his son said in remembrance. Among his robust certainties were his faith in God, his unswerving patriotism, his acceptance of life's hazards and pains, and his trust in persistent hard work. No scorn could match the scorn he had for men who settled for half measures, uttered half-truths, straddled the issues, or admitted the idea of failure or defeat. If he had a motto, it must have been the phrase, I've heard a thousand times, I'll fight like a wild cat. And boy, does that describe this guy. He had no acceptance for mediocrity. And if someone is gonna do it you know, half-mast, then he is you know, gonna get on their case. And so he was a tough boss to work for. And he demanded excellence because he demanded excellence in his own life. And he was very hard on himself and he was the best at whatever he did. And he would always uh, be superior to everyone around him. He was a hard-working guy. So fighting like a wildcat, and I don't know if you guys are gonna see and appreciate uh, my use of language here, the essence of dogged faith. I don't know. Do you guys appreciate that? I, I threw that in for you guys, but I'm not exactly sure that you, you understand. It's funny because dogged faith is the way that I've oftentimes described it, that the way that we approach the heavenly realms, when we're dealing with a natural realm that wants to refute everything we believe, and we stand up to believe something, the first thing the devil wants to do is, is contort our, our reality to say, see, God doesn't care. And our job is to fight against that. Our job is to hold our ground and say, I know my God is real. I know he is going to do this. And I've called that dogged faith. And now today I'm calling it fighting like a wildcat, right? So you're sort of like, Eric, get your animals uh, straight here. Which one are you going to go with? Genesis 32, 24, one of the greatest pictures of dogged faith or fighting like a wildcat. Then Jacob was left alone and a man with a capital M wrestled with him until the breaking of day. So this is the great picture of wrestling prayer throughout the ages, that Jacob is going to take that grip of his, which we all have a grip, but most of us are going to grip the wrong thing in our life. And that's the way we oftentimes even start out our Christianity. We grip our own ability or, you know, he's going to grip Esau or his first, the firstborn, which is oftentimes what we could describe as the flesh. Your own ability, your own strength, your own discipline, your own great, your own willpower. And Jacob is going to learn in life that grabbing the first did not solve his dilemma. He's after something. He esteems the right thing, but he needs to realize it is found only in God. And so there he is in Peniel in the dark of the night, and he is going to grab a hold of God and wrestle through the night, and he is going to say, not until you bless me will I let you go. And that is fighting like a wildcat where we in our souls will not relent until. Hebrews 3, 6, and then verse 14. We are Christ's house if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. So if you were to just recognize that concept of holding fast and not letting go, so uh, there's a character named Eric Ludie. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of him. Good guy. Good guy. You'd like him if you ever met him. And I'm going to say he's the man who is strangely attracted to difficult truths. See, when I look at Eddie Rickenbacker, I have to admit I'm not totally like him. This guy, Eddie Rickenbacker, is more what we would call the daredevil. He was afraid of nothing. And so what he would do was usually in extreme circumstances, like he loved to be in, like race cars in the early 1900s when he was driving them were open cockpit types of things. You know, your head was out in the open and they would roll over all the time. Tons of people died doing this. It's extremely high risk venture. And, you know, in World War I, what's, what do you think he's going to become? A fighter pilot. Well, you know that planes had just been invented, and they didn't work very well? The most dangerous place on earth during World War I would have been up in the air in a a fighter plane. And they're an open cockpit. You're like, your head is just sitting there uh, and exposed to everything. And this is like his dreamland, right? That's not me. I have no interest in either race car driving or being a fighter pilot. That's not me. But... I understand something about this man. And that is when it comes to spiritual things, I will take risk. And I will do things where everyone around is like, "Uh, Eric, you may want to think that through. Whoa, Eric, 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 before you do And then, uh uh-oh, he's doing it. And that's my life too. But it's very different. I'm not a daredevil risk taker in the physical sense. I don't like bungee jumping. I don't like jumping from planes. But spiritually, I love hard truths. It's like, speak it to me. Give me the hard stuff. I want to know what is true. And if it cuts me to the heart, great. I want all of this junk in Eric Ludi to be removed. And it's a different sort of thing. And so I'm going to you know, show at least some similarities. There's reasons why I'm attracted to this. And there's reasons why I want to use this for the idea of faith and prayer. So Eddie Rickenbacker, he's the man who is strangely attracted to difficult tasks. If there's a hard task, he's the first one to raise his hand. He's like, let me do it. And there, it's, it's a very admirable quality, I have to admit. When I look at, at Eddie Rickenbacker, you, you have to at least give honor where honor is due. It's like, okay, wow, that is, he's a very manly man. So Eddie, the famous race car driver, he has a strange attraction to open cockpits. So here's a sample picture of Eddie in a race car. He was one of the world's best, okay? This is before World War I. And he's zooming around in these race cars. When he was even just learning how to, you know, do race car driving, he was, they would always have two guys in the the race car. Like, I don't know if that other guy is in the race car there. I can't quite figure out, but there were always two, two guys. There was one guy that would deal with the mechanics and he was sort of this helper guy. Like when I think of Herbie, I uh, remember how there's like two people driving around. That's like my mental picture. That wasn't the way it was. These are, these are different cars than that. But one guy was sort of the mechanic. And so Eddie started as like the mechanic. He was very good with mechanics. And the other guy was driving. But they actually rolled uh, it going extremely fast and their heads are like exposed and of course Eddie survives as you know the story I mean, there's no way he's gonna die, right? This guy is indestructible and that's just part of the legend of Eddie Rickenbacker, but listen to this uh, w- This is in USA world one one of the world's most famous race car drivers was Eddie Rickenbacker before the war earning $40,000 per year, so I did a uh, a, an est- I did a little calculation on what that's worth a year. That's 1.24 million in 2023. So this guy is doing fairly well with his daredevil uh, risk-taking uh, ventures. So when World War One starts, he is going to become a chauffeur. That was actually very common for race car drivers over in Europe too. If you were really good with handling a race car, remember most people had never driven in a car in their life. And yet these generals need to get around and they need to go over around obstacles and they need to get there quick. And so these race car drivers are going to become chauffeurs for generals. So, but that was like sticking a lion in a cage. Uh, I mean, to give Eddie Rickenbacker the job of being a chauffeur when there's a war going on did not translate to Eddie very well. So this is uh, how usaworldwar1.com said it. When the United States entered World War I, Eddie was chosen as General John J. Pershing's chauffeur. He's one of the famous generals in the American uh, military. But Rickenbacker wasn't satisfied and wanted to see more action than just driving around the famous general. So Billy Mitchell arranged to get Rickenbacker into the United States Air Service. Uh, And so he was way too old for it, by the way. This is a young guy's sport. at the at the time, what would he have been, 24 or uh, he, he was he was older. I mean, he's like a grandpa compared to everyone else, right? So Eddie doesn't just get into the USAS, you know, the United States Air Service, and show marginal skill. He, you know, there's always what's called the ace of aces. So there's an ace, and then there's the ace of aces. The ace of aces for every country is the fighter with the most kills or the most, you know, the shot down uh, of the enemy. And so Eddie immediately sets his target of being the ace of aces, which is pretty hard because he didn't start out the war. I mean, these other guys have a head start, and he immediately starts dominating in, in this category. But this is, and I'm gonna give you a little tutorial on what it means to be a flying ace uh, in World War I. Because for us, it's hard to even imagine. This is the Red Baron days. The Red Baron was in World War I. It's the open cockpit, head exposed, you know, where you're like, if you've ever seen the, you know, the Red Baron, he's like, ha, 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 you know, he's like, choo, choo, it is And it is really strange. It's very difficult to survive this, guys. Very, most of these guys, including the Red Baron, never lasted the war. Almost every single one of them that would be famous in World War I did not live to the end of World War I. So here's, this is the rule of thumb for World War I. By the way, that sort of rhymes. I did that for you guys. Eve, every time you fly, you need to accept that odds are you won't come back. This is how every flying ace had to think. It's actually greater odds that you die than that you would come back. And imagine heading out every day that way. So James Hamilton Patterson, in his article, Marked for Death, the First War in the Air, World War I fighter pilots had a life expectancy of just three weeks. But to an adoring public, World War I flying aces were the rock stars of the skies. These guys, I mean, the girls would scream when they would see pictures of these World War I flying aces. And so you can imagine, okay, yeah, my life expectancy is three weeks, but hey, in those three weeks, I could be really cool. So another rule of thumb for World War I. The moment you sign up for the USAS, or the United States Air Service, there is a 70% chance you will either die or come back home maimed. chance that that's gonna be the case for you, wow. So James Hamilton Patterson said, moreover, there were all kinds of other hardships in those rickety biplanes we can hardly imagine today, not least widespread diarrhea among pilots who flew aircraft such as the Sopwith Pup, which had rotary engines spewing out castor oil. Pilots constantly inhaled the oil's laxative mist for which one of the remedies was brandy, though that wasn't exactly conducive to flying safely either. Then there was altitude sickness to contend with, the intense cold of open cockpits and agonizing pins and needles brought on when descending quickly, not to mention splitting headaches that could last for days. This is absolute misery, guys. And But there are these guys that loved it. They actually wore those scarves, you know, those famous scarves around them for, for the chafing that would take place just from the gusting winds and everything that was flying at them. And that was actually a preservation. It wasn't wasn't to look cool. That's what I was going to say <laughs> right, as I, uh, right as I do that. And don't look so cool. Uh, you guys didn't see that. I'm sure the video would edit that out. No, yeah, D- yeah, James would edit that out, wouldn't he? No, he won't. He'll leave that for everyone. So these, these planes were so bad. They cost a lot, right? But this was a new invention. This was a new thing. And they would just freeze up. Every now and then, you know, the, the, the engine would just go, and then you, you have no control of it. Sometimes things would just blow up. And if something blows up on a plane, the whole thing could blow up. And so a lot of guys died, not because they were shot down, but because the plane didn't work. Now get this, the United States Air Force or the Air Service would not supply parachutes purposely. Why? Because then someone could jump out of this very expensive contraption and save their own life, but then lose this very expensive contraption. So in World War I, they did not supply parachutes. Is that the I mean the weirdest thing? I mean, this was like high-risk danger. And of course, Eddie loves it. So I, I call this the UAS or USAS or the United States Air Service send-off speech of World War I. Now I made this up, but this is about what it was, guys. Men! The plane you are flying can freeze up or blow up for no apparent reason at any time, so be aware. No parachutes are supplied lest you think of being a coward and jumping out and letting all this expensive equipment go to waste. There will only be a few of you that will come back alive. Pray you are one of them. Good luck, men. And it's true, I mean, very few came back alive. And guess who uh, came back alive? Eddie. I mean, Eddie survives all this. Not just that, but he was the ace of aces. More shot down than anyone else in America. This guy is the hero of heroes when he comes back from World War I. So the legend of Rickenbacker. In a dogfight with the Germans, Rickenbacker took down two of them. Then due to so many bullets in his plane, his plane lost power and began to nosedive. Remember, no parachutes were supplied in World War I. Rickenbacker started flicking switches, trying anything and everything, and right before he struck the earth, something worked. He has no idea what, and his plane came to life. I mean, this is story after story. When you hear the stories of, of these pilots sharing these things, it's like he's like diving straight to, and his engines are both out. And he's like, you know, what am I clicking? I don't know. Different combinations. And then suddenly, and he's saved. The great indestructible, Eddie Rickenbacker. Now, when it comes to your faith, this is precisely how we function. I mean, I resonate so deeply with everything this guy is going through because that's my spiritual life. I could have chosen a lot easier version of living. Believe me, there are other versions that are far less hazardous to the soul, to the life, to the circumstances, and yet as believers, in a sense, we're raising our hand for the USAS. And the guy's looking back at us going, you do know what you're signing up for, sir, do you not? I do. You have counted the cost of this. Very few will come back alive. I understand. I wanna serve my God. And there's something about this attitude that if we could apply it spiritually is a great description of the doggedness or the wildcatness of what God is looking for in our souls. So there's Eddie in his open cockpit. Uh, Here's another quote from USAW, uh, One.com. Charismatic, tall, and blessed with matinee idol good looks. Eddie Rickenbacker is the most famous American ace of World War I. He went on to end the war with the most kills of any American pilot for the United States, France, Great Britain, or Italy. Unlike all previous American ace of aces, he survived to Armistice Day, November 11, 1918. Every other ace of ace died. And so, but he was the one that survived. So there's another picture of Eddie. Uh, He seemed to like to pose. He always sort of looks the exact same in each of his pictures. Look at this. There's another one. Uh, Look at those guys. Now, those guys are cool. Uh, Now, I'm saying that not necessarily because I think they're just cool. I mean, this is like the age. This was the thing that everyone admired was a fighter pilot. Why make one more flight, one more wartime flight? So Wait till you hear this story, guys, because you are Eddie Rickenbacker. So Armistice Day, uh, so we have, what was it? The 11th month, the 11th hour. uh, So it's November 11th at 11 a.m., I think is what it was. And but up until that time, even though all the soldiers in the trenches know that at 11 a.m. they're putting down their weapons, they're going to fight and kill until that time because someone's trying to kill them until that time. So Eddie decides that he would like to go out and see it. So he actually goes out over the enemy lines just so he can see armistice, you know, the armistice and the exact moment. He's one of the few people on earth, if not the only one on earth that got to witness it from the air, like up close. And so he's, then he details it in his autobiography. So listen to this. Eddie said, about 10 o'clock, or uh, ten one hundred? is that how you would say it? 10, 100 hours? Uh, is that how? Uh, 10 o'clock? That's, I could just say 10 o'clock? Boy, that's a lot easier. At about 10 o'clock, I sauntered out to the hangar. I climbed into the plane and took off. I arrived over Verdun, which is in France, at 10.45 and proceeded on towards Conflans, flying over no man's land. I was less than 500 feet I could see both Germans and Americans crouching in their trenches, peering over with every intention of killing any man who revealed himself to the other side. From time to time ahead of me on the German side, I saw a burst of flame and I knew that they were firing at me. Back at the field later, I found bullet holes in my ship. I glanced at my watch, one minute to 11. So he's flying. He he didn't go back to the field yet. He just saying later, he found out that he actually had bullet holes in his plane. So he glanced at his watch one minute to 11, 30 seconds, 15, and then it was 11 a.m., the 11th hour on the 11th day of the 11th month. I was the only audience for the greatest show ever presented. On both sides of no man's land, the trenches erupted. Brown uniformed men poured out of the American trenches, gray-green uniforms out of the German. After four hours of slaughter and hatred, they were not only hugging each other but kidding each other I should say kissing, guys. Sorry, it's kidding. I mean, kidding is actually a little less intense as kissing, but it actually was kissing. They were hug- not only hugging each other, but kissing each other on both cheeks as well. I turned my ship toward the field. The war was over. What? A- who goes out for a fun mission at the very end? He survived. Just, you know, hey, just continue to survive. But he's Eddie Rickenbacker, okay? This guy's the great indestructible. So he gets done with the war, and now there's records to be won, like the, the, you know, the, the fastest uh, distance from here to here in an airplane. So he's going after airspeed records. And why would he do this? Well, because he's Eddie Rickenbacker. So in a cross-country record-breaking flight, his plane lost control and struck a house. A beam of wood shot through the cockpit and missed severing his head from his neck by a couple of inches. The legend grows. The hero with the hanging eyeball. Okay, this is a true story, guys. <laughs> this is so wild. The legend grows. As the president of Eastern Airlines, he hosted a cross-country trip on a silver sleeper plane, February 27, 1941. Both of the plane's engines fail. Eddie Rickenbacker calmly walks back to speak with the passengers on board and with a smile says, we're going to crash, but we should have every expectation we will make it through this. Many on the plane died, but not Eddie. He somehow survived. Even with his left eye popped out and dangling on his cheek, he labored to help those around him. It took an hour to extricate him from the wreckage. In addition to his left eye, he had skull damage, a broken leg, broken ribs, a crushed hip, a broken pelvis, a broken knee, and a crushed left elbow. But somehow, Eddie was alive. Okay? Uh, this is Eddie Rickenbacker, guys. This is It's a legend. And by the way, his greatest story is still to come. This man has survived, has survived, has survived, and he has shown himself to be meritorious in every regard, like honorable, like he is considering everyone around him and he would gladly give up his life to preserve someone else. And I mean, the, the left, the dangling left eyeball is a rather disturbing thing. I, I get it. But to imagine how few of us could focus. Nope. I mean, I don't know if that's a pun or what, but how many of us could focus in such a moment to consider others around us. If my left eye is dangling, I have some serious concerns of my own. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a, it's a profound statement. Let me just put it that way. <clears throat> so here's the wreckage. I mean, it's, it's a terrible wreckage. That's his body that they're carrying right there. It's amazing. So ironically, in the war, he never crashed once, but he's going to be in three crashes after the war. I don't know, how many airplane crashes have you guys been in? Yeah, zero? Yeah, that's more normal, okay? And if you are in a crash, you usually don't come out the other side, let alone to be a fighter pilot in World War I and hazard all the things he did and never crash, and then be outside of World War I and crash three times and survive all three. So October 20th, 1942. Now, if you remember our, our calendar that we're on, this is after the Battle of El Alamein, you know, which we, we covered on, on Friday. Uh, and we had, uh, you know Battle of Midway was in June, but uh, we've had a lot of things uh, that have been taking place in this year, but his greatest adventure yet. So Henry Stimson, who was the Secretary of War during World War II, is going to need a favor done. He needs to deliver a message to General Douglas MacArthur, who is in the Pacific Theater. Whether he was in the Philippines, I'm not sure where he was at in this exact time, but he's fighting the Japanese. And we don't know what the message was, and Eddie Rickenbacker took it to the grave. He never never shared what it was that he was asked by Stimson to share with MacArthur. Of course, many people have speculated that it was a correction of MacArthur, that MacArthur, you know, the only person he felt that MacArthur would listen to was Eddie Rickenbacker. So Eddie is called in. Now, Eddie's recovering from a pretty extreme crash one year earlier, right? His body is never fully recovered. He's not physically doing that well. But he's the one man that Stimson feels could pull off this task. And it's going to take a very strong man. I don't know if you've ever studied Douglas MacArthur, but he was a very stout man in his own right. And it's very possible that he wasn't taking the leadership of Stimson seriously over the war. And he was sort of his own man. He's going to do it his own way. All speculation, we don't know. But Eddie is going to get on a flight and he's he's in Australia and he's going to take off from Australia and head to where MacArthur is. And if you can imagine it, The plane is going to get off course and then lose its engines. I know there's something about Eddie and losing engines and is going to crash in the Pacific somewhere and no one knows where. And that's part of the grand adventure. So here's part of the story. Out of fuel in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and miles and miles away from any semblance of land, they ditched it. So they ditched the plane. Uh, That's the equivalent of a controlled crash. It was a rough landing, but they had time to get out of the plane. They managed to get four oranges, some flares, three rafts, a 50-foot length of rope, but not much more. And there was around eight of them, I, I believe. So I'm not going into the story, even though the story is fantastic, guys. And I mean, I, I, technically, I'm going into a little of it. But there, there, it's a whole movie. In and of itself. So I'm not going into that. I'm just going to like cut to the chase. First of all, the fact that he survived it yet again. Okay. This is another crash in the Pacific Ocean. They're in the middle of nowhere. They get these rafts, and they're all like these rafts are teeny. So however many they have, they're all just like crammed on these things. And they have what was it, like four oranges? And so they're going to be eating one eighth of an orange every day, each one of them. And they're going to end up without any, they can't just drink the water, it's salt water, they can't, even though it's tempting, and so they know enough of how to survive, but they have, and they're in this doldrums area where it is roasting hot during the day, there's no rain, and they're not going anywhere, they're just like sitting in in the baking sun, and so, you know, you can just imagine the sharks are, are swimming around, they don't have a lot of hope, because they were so far off course, that no one even in the search parties have no idea where to look for them. And so it's a classic movie, all right, is what I'm saying. Everything about this is what makes a great movie. Of course, as long as they're found in the end. Otherwise, that's not a very good movie. Uh, (laughs) And there's a lot of those stories, unfortunately. But so there's this one young guy who uh, his mom was really concerned about his soul. He's one of the young uh, guys, uh, and he was one of the lowest ranking if not the lowest ranking out of the whole crew and he is going to have a bible that his mom stuck in his stuff and he's going to realize it's there and he's going to you know in a time like that if there was ever a time to turn to your bible that would be one and so there's one guy mocking, you know, the, you have the atheist over here that's mocking and saying, oh yeah, now you turn to fables, you know, to try and, you know, soothe your soul. And this young man is starting to read it. And then these other guys are like, could you read that out loud? Uh, and so it becomes this thing where this one guy is very much against it, saying this is fables and everyone else is just like, this is what we need. And so they realize that they need to pray. And this is the part of the story that very few people actually ever get a chance to hear because when you tell these types of stories, they usually eradicate the faith dimension of it, of the supernatural of what God did. But they're they are not gonna be able to last much longer. They have no moisture, no water, and no food. And so, I mean, the body, especially in heat like this, cannot uh, handle it much longer. And so they pray, and this one guy's mocking them the whole time. And right after they pray... Uh, it starts raining. And he, uh, uh, Rickenbacker had this hat that he was able to catch the rain in. It was like one of those, uh, what, a bucket hat? Uh, Is that what it's called? And so he's catching uh, the rain in that. And that was like the first answer, where they're suddenly gonna get just this supernatural rain out of nowhere right after they pray. And so the other guy's like, yeah, that was coincidence. And so they pray, they pray for food. They can't fish. They don't have anything to draw the fish in. And so they're trying to figure out how to do this. And so they're praying that God would give them food in the middle of nowhere. And a seagull is going to come and land. I think it's on Rickenbacker's head. And they're all staring at it. And he reaches his hands up and grabs it. And suddenly they have a seagull in the middle of all this. Now, that's food, yes, but it's also bait for fish. And so they're going to start this pattern of actually being able to catch fish because of this seagull that is going to land on, that, on his head right after they prayed. So I, don't, I, I didn't get the final story of whatever happened with that atheist. I know that would be really really good to know. But what a, what a profound thing to realize, just like we talk about in faith, That there are times when we end up in the doldrums and our raft, which seems way too small for us, doesn't seem to be moving. And why are we so depleted? Does God not see our need? And yet in this situation, it's like this is the essence of wrestling prayer right here. It's like in this moment, do you believe that your God cares? Do you believe that your God answers prayer? But what could he possibly do? How could I get fresh water in the middle of nowhere? How could I possibly have food in the middle of this situation where we can't fish? And yet, suddenly, God has his own answers that wouldn't even have even been in our minds. I, I wouldn't have come up with those. I mean, the fresh water of rain, that makes total sense. I mean, it's like, yeah, okay, that makes total sense. But, I mean, that's, that's extraordinary. So I'm calling it the supernatural caretaking of Eddie Rickenbacker. So they're gonna give up the search. I don't know how many days into it, maybe two weeks into it. They're spending a lot of resource, and the main reason they've gone even as far as they have is because it's Eddie Rickenbacker. If it was anyone lesser, uh, they probably would have given up even earlier than that because there's a certain amount of resource that is needed of your, your, your wherewithal, your focus to do a search party. And there's a lot of things that go down in the ocean in, in a war. But it's Rickenbacker. And Rickenbacker's a, a, the nation's hero. And so people start realizing that Rickenbacker, the great indestructible, is probably gone. In fact, that's, that's the common sense is even newspapers are starting to say, it. let's accept it, people. Rickenbacker didn't survive everything. They're, that he actually maybe can die. I mean, this is, this is what our nation is going through. And so they give up the search party. So there's no hope for these guys. And Adelaide Rickenbacker, his wife, makes a plea. I think she actually went straight to Roosevelt. And uh, she gets an audience with Roosevelt. And I think I have uh, a semblance of a quote here. I don't know that we actually have the actual quote, but he's still alive. Don't give up the search. My husband is still alive. Isn't that a great statement? See, this is, it's not just Rickenbacker's faith. We could also throw in a little Adelaide faith right there. When you get to that point where it seems impossible, that this is where that understanding of the kingdom of heaven and his ability to do all things is so critical. Now, I know some of you could say, well, there is a point when someone actually does die and the search party should be called off. I get that. However, we're not talking about that. We're talking about our faith. And we're talking about the fact that our God never fails. Our God is God. And he, when he promises, he will deliver. So on day 24, they were spotted. So they are going to renew the search. And the strangest thing, they find them. And he's alive. If you can even imagine. Here's the front page of the Chicago Daily News. Rickenbacker saved by Navy. All companions but one alive. Uh, Remarkable story. So you can see it on the far right. Flying ace found on raft in Pacific. (laughs) It's a big deal to America. So here's the picture of him actually being rescued. He'd lost, I think it was like 40 to 60 pounds. I don't remember how much it was. Fight like a wildcat. So as his son said, if he had a motto, it must have been the phrase, I've heard a thousand times, I'll fight like a wildcat. Lead by personal example. Here's a statement about his life. He liked to lead by example and told his men that he wouldn't have them do anything or any flying that he wouldn't do himself. And so you can't tell people to fight like a wildcat unless you're willing to fight like a wildcat first. You can't tell the church to pray unless you're willing to pray. You can't say, hold on in prayer. Don't give up in prayer unless you're first willing to do that. Never, ever, ever give up. Here's a great quote by a woman named Adelaide Rickenbacker. He's still alive. Don't give up the search. Imagine you apply that to your spiritual life and to your prayer life. So holding on to the banister, this is my personal application of it throughout my life, not letting go until. So this is my Jacob wrestling with the man of God moment when I was baited in the middle of the night to go downstairs. This is a long time ago in my life. And there was something downstairs that was desiring my attentions. And up to that point, when I had gotten up and started moving, I never was able to interrupt that. It would, it would always be fulfilled in some dumb decision. And yet in this situation, I remember that desire to change a pattern in my life. I wanted to go in a different direction. I wanted to live in a different way. And so I remember I grabbed the banister at the top of the stairs and I resolved that I was not going to leave this banister and let go of this banister until I found out what it is that God supplies his saints to overcome sin. I don't know what it is, but I know there's something. God, you're not calling me to overcome sin and not supplying me with the ability to do it. I just don't know how to get it. So I'm not letting go until, until I get what you have. It's a changing point for me. I went to bed that night and now I know what to call it. It's called grace. But at that time, I didn't have anyone training me in the fact that God supplies for that test. I was taking it with that raw determination, saying, God, I know you supply something because I see it supplied in your word. I just don't know what it is experientially. I've never accessed this, and I don't even know what to call it. Praying until you pray, not rising until. So there's, there's some great stories about this. It, Hudson Taylor's mom is going to resolve that she is not going to get up from her prayer position until she gets the assurance that her son Hudson has yielded to Jesus Christ. And little Hudson Taylor was not at all interested in Jesus Christ. He had never shown even a flicker of interest. Meanwhile, while she is praying, at the same time she is in that posture of prayer, Hudson Taylor is going through a trial and an agony in his own inner life. And he is questioning things. And he goes to the bookshelf and he grabs some book. I don't know if it was the Bible. And he is going to actually begin to read it. And he's searching for something. And God is going to speak to him. And he is going to see the validity, the truthfulness of Jesus. And he is going to yield. And his mom is then going to get the assurance as she's down on her face that he has heard her prayer. And when she comes home, Hudson is so excited to share the news with his mom. And so when she opens the door, uh, he's smiling, and she's smiling, and he goes, Mom, I have something to tell you. And she goes, I know. I mean, that's a, great, that's a movie moment too, guys. Uh, but that's the same thing. It's the Eddie Rickenbacker, Adelaide Rickenbacker sort of faith. So praying until you pray. This is from an article by A.W. Tozier. I think you guys will like this. Dr. Moody Stewart, a great praying man of a past generation, once drew up a set of rules to guide him in his prayers. Among these rules is this one, pray till you pray. The difference between praying till you quit and praying till you pray is illustrated by the American evangelist John Wesley Lee. He often likened a season of prayer to a church service and insisted that many of us close the meeting before the service is over. He confessed that once he arose too soon from a prayer session and started down the street to take care of some pressing business. He had only gone a short distance when an inner voice reproached him saying, "'Son,' the voice seemed to say, "'did you not pronounce the benediction before the meeting was ended?' He understood and at once hurried back to the place of prayer where he tarried till the burden lifted and the blessing came down. The habit of breaking off prayers before we have truly prayed is as common as it is unfortunate. Often the last 10 minutes may mean more to us than the first half hour because we must spend a long time getting into the proper mood to pray effectively.'" I really relate to that. There are certain ways that you can approach prayer. And one is sort of the dutiful way, where it's just like, okay, we're gonna get this out of the way. Let's just make sure we can check off our prayer for the day and let's get our right statements heavenward and so God can do his thing and but now I can do my thing. Instead of being in the presence of God and saying, God, what is on your heart? And then carrying that burden until that burden is lifted. And That's a tension for us because that makes us dependent upon God. And when you are truly praying, and I see if you guys can resonate with this or or recognize this in your own spiritual lives, there are times when you're praying and you know you are praying. And there's other times when you're praying and you don't have that same sense that you're really praying. You, you're doing it and you're going through all the motions, but there's a difference. So, this idea that A.W. Tozier is bringing up here is that we pray until we pray. And sometimes you have to press through that awkwardness, that tiredness, that difficulty, that sludge to get there. But again, it's sort of an Eddie Rickenbacker fighting like a wildcat to break through until. Don't be so passive. Don't be such a pushover to the difficulties in life. Press through them. We may need to struggle with our thoughts to draw them in from where they have scattered through the multitude of distractions that result from the task of living in a disordered world. Some Christians smile at the thought of praying through, but something of the same idea is found in the writings of practically every great praying saint from Daniel to the present day. We cannot afford to stop praying till we have actually prayed. So the term in Christian history is praying through. It's just a term, but it's this idea of praying until you pray, that you're busting through something as opposed to subsiding into silence. Like this is just hard. The thing I love about Eddie Rickenbacker is he fought like a wildcat, and he refused to allow whatever that hard barrier that would cause most people, 99% of society go, I'm not doing that. No, no, I'm going to stay away from that. Open cockpit? You've got to be kidding. Instead, he fought through that, and he impacted the world in which he, li- which he lived. And the same thing happens in our lives, that when we allow that, that sludge, that awkward, that, that barrier, whatever it is that hinders us, because it, it plays upon that indolence in our own nature, which is like, oh, I, don't, I just don't have time for this, or I don't want to have to press. I don't want to have to be energized to do this today because we're looking in our own capacity we're looking in our own pockets going i don't have it today god he's like um, i have it today in other words if you want it i can give it to you and that's what it means to pray until you pray where we don't look in our own pockets anymore but we say you have it god and we bust through to get his supply we don't let go until we get his supply Luke 18.1, men ought always to pray and to not faint. And I have in parentheses to lose heart, to lose the fight, to give up the wild cat's you know, screech, whatever, it is, the doggedness, whichever animal you prefer. because I know we're probably split right down the middle here. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Now that can be a, a very hard term to understand and to swallow, without ceasing. So one of the ways I look at it is whenever you have an assignment in prayer, that you pray and you pray and you pray until you've, just like Elijah, you see the cloud the size of a man's fist. You pray and you pray and you pray and you pray. You pray without ceasing until you have prayed. So I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with talking about it being a continual uh, connectivity with God. I, I don't see anything wrong with that as far as it's a re, that's the, the abiding life. And so that is a part and it could be a great interpretation of this. The other one is if there's that rope hanging from heaven and it's attached to the promises of God and God's showing you the rope, it's swinging in front of you. He's like, pull on it. That you pull and you pull and you don't just wait for a, k- but you wait for it to break loose. You wait for that which God has promised to come to this earth. And when you have the cloud the size of a man's fist, and you get the assurance that God has heard your prayer, you know it. Just like Elijah, he can get up from his praying and say, all right, go tell Ahab the rain is coming, and tell him to get down quick. Well, all we have is a cloud the size of a man's fist in an otherwise cloudless sky. Tell Ahab to get down quick, the rains are coming. You see, this is the essence of praying. Consider the ant. So Tamerlane, I love this quote, a uh, famous military leader way back in the 14th century. "'I once was forced to take shelter from my enemies "'in a ruined building where I sat alone for many hours. "'Desiring to divert my mind from my hopeless condition, "'I fixed my eyes on an ant "'that was carrying a grain of corn "'larger than itself up a high wall. I numbered the efforts it made to accomplish this object. The grain fell 69 times to the ground, but the insect persevered. In the 70th time, it reached the top. This sight gave me courage at the moment, and I never forgot the lesson. When you are trying to carry uh, that grain of corn up this high wall, I mean, most of us, some of us don't even pick up the grain of corn because of how high the wall is in the first place those of us in this room, we're probably ones that have picked up the grain of corn and we've marched up that wall. You know how discouraging it would be to get close to the top of the wall and to have that grain of corn fall? And you know that it oftentimes falls further from the wall than when it started? Now what do you do? Now you have to travel all the way down the wall over to the grain of corn and pick it up again. And this is Christianity, that we are going to persist and persist and persist and persist and persist. I mean, this is a tough story because 69 times, I'm not sure how many repetitions it takes you before you start to lose heart, that you pray and you pray and you pray, but God says, do not faint or do not lose heart. Keep going. But this is hard stuff, guys. So the 70th attempt, you know, that's the one that's actually gonna get it up, but we don't know it's the final one. Just like for Elijah, he didn't know that the seventh was going to be the breakthrough. It just happened to be the breakthrough because God seems to like the number seven or 70, right? And so most of us are hoping that in our life, he leans more towards the seven than the 70. But even seven can be hard. But 70 is extra hard. At 69, we're ready to give up. But the 70th one is when it's going to break through. Come on, guys, pull a Rickenbacker, hang in there stand before roosevelt's and plead do not give up the search he's alive out there that promise of god has not died go after it so the 70th attempt the hardest of them all so here's some scriptures with our grain of corn in it now this is my adaptation just in case you're wondering luke 18:1 men ought always to pray and not to set down the grain of corn Galatians 6, nine and let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we do not stop carrying the corn up the high wall. And finally, 2 Thessalonians 3.13, but as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. Do not give up even though you've done it 69 times only to see the heavy grain of corn fall to the ground. Seventieth the time could be the time you make it. The Spirit and the Bride have been praying the same prayer for 2,000 years. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Uh, Sure doesn't look like he's come. Should we give up? Even the Holy Spirit is praying. And you're wondering about the effectiveness of your praying. Well, just look at that. The Holy Spirit has been praying, come, Lord Jesus, come for 2,000 years. And Jesus hasn't come yet. That doesn't mean he's not coming. Are you willing to go and pick up that grain of corn afresh? Are you willing to face the hazards? Are you willing to go and do the job that most people on this earth are saying, I'm not fit for that? Praying is our piloting in World War I. Praying is like race car driving in the early 1900s. Praying is transatlantic trips to try and get a message to General MacArthur. It's like, why should I risk my life for these things? You see, we're not fighting earthly battles like Rickenbacker was. We're fighting heavenly ones, spiritual ones. The battle we fight is even greater. But the daring needed is the same. And we have been called to lay down our life that Jesus Christ would be revealed in this hour, in this generation. Rickenbacker gets to be considered handsome, handsome, And a superstar and a hero, and it's very likely that none of us will be. That's another one of the challenges, is it's actually not that cool to be a Christian that is fighting and laboring to carry a grain of corn up a wall, and it doesn't have a lot of plaudits and a lot of applause to it, and yet we have the greatest assignment on earth. Even though this world may not see it, heaven does see it. And, you know, all of us should aim to be the ace of aces when it comes to this life here. We have one shot at it. Let's use it well. So, I'll fight like a wildcat is Eddie Rickenbacker's statement. Mine, as you guys know, is watch what my God will do. And in those darkest moments, that's the quote for my soul. And you could say, who in the world are you talking to? I don't know talking to my soul. I'm talking to the highest heaven, the lowest hell. Watch! My God is faithful. He's going to come through. His work is not done here. Hang on, O soul of Eric Ludi. And the same thing is true for all of us. Whether it's doggedness, fighting like a wildcat, whatever metaphor or animal works best for you to show that the kingdom of heaven is gained in and through this vigorous reaching out and holding on to the promises of God and not letting go. Father, this is a work of grace. This isn't just a work of our resolve and our gritted teeth. This is a work of you inside of us to give us your gritted teeth, to give us your resolve. And I pray, Lord, that you would do that and that you would give us that Elijah-like praying fervency. You would give us that Jacob-like wrestling. You would give us that Rickenbacker-like fight, that determination not to let go, that Adelaide Rickenbacker plea to say, don't stop the search. My husband is alive. Lord Jesus, we want to live for you, for your glory, for your honor, for your praise. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon mountain time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.